0: Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. Come to chapter 4, just two verses today 13 and 14. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, boy, we like everybody to have a Bible, and we know God wants everybody to have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles, just wave to them, get their attention. They'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. And uh, so you can read the Word of God as well as hear it this morning. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Life-changing Word of God. Two verses, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight that is God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the revelation of you that is found in it and of your ways. And we just give you praise from this church today for the quality of life, uh, just unimaginable to us, before we came to know you. The life that we enjoy every day, we never thought it was possible, and you've made it possible. And we thank you for the great place that your word has played and all of that. And we pray that you bless us now as we turn to your word and as we desire to grow deeper in our understanding of both it and you. Just meet with us. Speak to us, Lord. Give us greater and greater insight into your word by your Holy Spirit here this morning. Pray that each, for each one that stands before you today that is not yet a Christian, they haven't yet trusted in your son, we pray that today would be the day that that light would go on for them, they would understand their need, and then understand your provision for their need, Lord, and they would enter into your family. And we pray for the work of your Spirit that is needed for that to happen in each of their lives. We just acknowledge your love for them and your love for us, Lord, and we pray today would be the day of their salvation. We ask all of these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The writer of the book of Hebrews has just finished reminding his readers of the consequences of the children of Israel's disobedience to the Lord that resulted in their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and their failure to enter into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And because of that, disobedience to the lord they wandered in that wilderness and for 40 years until uh every single male adult male of that generation except for Joshua and Caleb ended up dying in the wilderness and their death and, and all all of that is very very tragic But the most tragic thing about that whole chapter in the history of the children of Israel is that it was completely unnecessary. It was, it was virtually as easy for them to rather than spend 40 years wandering in a wilderness and dying there. It would have been just as easy for them to have spent those same 40 years in the promised land, in the land of Israel, enjoying uh, a the land of milk and honey, the plenty of it, the blessing of it as God had provided for them. And so you have these two very different qualities of life. Wandering in the wilderness 40 years, this is what could have been the promised land, the blessing of that. And it's a big deal. I mean, if you got the got a, a, a separation of the quality of life like this for just a week... A camping trip is enough to, like, drive home the force. Okay, I don't want to be there. I want to be here. For them, it was 40 years. They were in this place rather than in this place. And it all hinged on just a simple thing. It hinged on their obedience to the Word of God, what they chose to do with God's commandments. I remember when... I was a new Christian. There was a children's program that they put on at our church, and uh, my wife was involved in it, so I was at every performance. But not just because of that, but I just liked being in the environment. Lots of kids in the room packed out, actually, performance after performance. And it was a, a thing called Anselvania. And it had one single great point that was driven through. And believe me, it's it's got to be a great point for me to remember it 30 years later. But the point that was made, and it was a part of the song, is you win or lose by the way you choose. Speaking about the importance of obedience to God. We win every time we obey the Word of God. Because it's the way to live. And we lose every time we disobey the Word of God. Somebody says, no, you know, I've, I've cut corners on the Word of God and I've compromised it and even disobeyed it and I've come out ahead as a result of it. No, you haven't. You haven't, you don't know the rest of the story yet. No one disobeys God's Word and wins. Because it is now to go against God, it is to go against all of creation and the whole stream and the flow of life and the way that God has made it to be. And so that kind of person just hasn't um, come to realize yet the price that they've paid for that disobedience. And as the writer here is writing about, meditating about the glory of God's Word, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pens... One of the most magnificent descriptions of the Word of God in all of the Bible here in verses 12 and 13. And I want us to notice this morning his fivefold description of the Word of God. First of all, he tells us that the Word of God is living. It's alive. The Bible pulsates with life. And the reason that the Bible is alive and it's a living book is because it is the very Word of God. I am fond of a story, true story, of an Indian missionary who would travel through India. He would go into these various villages and go into the kind of the pedestrian area at the center of the village. He would put his Bible down onto the dirt path and then he would begin to dance around it exclaiming, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive, until a great crowd would gather and then he'd pick up that living book and he'd preach a living gospel to them and lives would be changed. That was a man who understood the power of the Word of God, understood the life of the Word of God. And so the Word of God isn't some dead, merely historical book, and it certainly isn't some outdated book. Sometimes that's what happens. People think of the Bible, and even sometimes an entire culture looks at the Bible, oh, it's antiquated, it's outdated, we're so progressive, we've moved beyond it, and and so it really doesn't have anything uh, to say to us. But the Bible is not an outdated book. It has something to say and will always have something to say to every generation of human beings and to every individual human being because there are things that don't change in history. There's instruction that we need individually, nationally, worldwide. There's instruction that we need in every single age. And the Bible answers all of the big questions in life. You take a country, and I believe I live in one, that increasingly views the Bible as a book that's outdated and has nothing to offer, and I will contend that that is never a bad reflection upon the Bible, but it's a bad reflection on the culture. It says that the culture is no longer asking the great questions in life. And if they had a concern for the great questions in life, instead of superficial things day in and day out, they would be driven to the Word of God, and they'd marvel at the majesty of the Word of God, in that it asks... it. in that it not only asks the great questions of life, but then it answers those great questions. When an individual looks at the Bible and says, it's outdated, it has nothing to offer, never a reflection on the Word of God, but a reflection upon the superficiality of that person or of the culture. And so the Bible addresses... All of the important issues in life and it answers all of the important questions in life. Questions like, what is the meaning and the purpose of life? Why are we here? What's all of this about, Alfie? What's this for? Is this, what's going on in this big thing that I find myself in the middle of? Is there a God? And if there is a God, what's he like? And, Can I come to know him? Is he interested in someone like me? How did this whole universe around us come into existence? How is life intended to be lived? Why do people die? What happens when people die? How can a person prepare themselves for death? You think about how valuable are the answers to those questions. And no person... I don't care how much power they have or money they have, what their intelligence is, what their life experience is, no person who does not ask those questions and does not have the answers to those questions can be considered a rich and fulfilled and well-rounded person in any way. And only the Bible answers those questions. The Bible is... Alive with life, with spiritual life, and it's willing and ready to enliven anyone with its spiritual truth. Now somebody might say, and very, very honestly, someone might say, I'm not yet a Christian, I've tried to read the Bible several times, and trust me, I found it to be anything but alive. I've never read a more boring book or more incomprehensible book in my entire life. And here's the problem that you're facing, one that can be rectified this morning. You're trying to read it from the inferior position of doing it apart from the author. An the author of the Bible is, is the Holy Spirit. And so you don't have a relationship yet with God and with the Holy Spirit, so you're reading this book on your own. Once you hear the gospel of God's love for your soul, of the fact that you are a sinner and your sin has separated you from a relationship with God, the relationship that you've been created for, And that God loved you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay the full penalty for the forgiveness of your sins in order that you might enter into a living, personal, daily, eternal relationship with God. When a person hears that good news, puts their faith in Jesus as their Savior, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will then come into your life and now you have the author of the book living inside of you. How valuable is it, concerning any book you want to read in life, how valuable is it to pick the book up, begin to read it, and you have the author present to answer any questions? How valuable is it to have the author present to the instructions on how to put up the swing set that you tried to do for the kids in the backyard? You say, who are these people that... Make up these instructions. They're masochists, they're sadists, or whatever they are. Sadists, whatever. I mean, here there's ridiculous, this is, nobody can make this out. But if they were present right here, would you please try to explain to me what was evidently so clear to you when you put it down in such gobbledygook on this page and you had me build the entire thing and I realized now I didn't put the bolts in for the slide and I have to dismantle the whole thing in order to make it safe. And so that's the thing about the Bible is it explodes to life once the author comes inside of me because he is eager to open it up to us. And so that happens when we're born again. I remember very well trying to read the Bible before becoming a Christian, and I would agree living was not the word that I thought of (laughs) concerning it uh, either. But now the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and he gives us a hunger for the Word of God, and then he Uh, opens it up to us. And so if you're not a Christian here today, your first step is trust in Jesus for as your Savior today, Holy Spirit will come inside of you and He will open this book up to you in a way that you never dreamed. Now, the Bible, the fact that the Bible is alive and God makes it so makes the Bible different from every other book in the world. This book is different from every other book in the world absolutely different, different in its depth, different in what it addresses, different in its nuance, different in its detail. You take the classics that men and women have written down through the ages. We're talking about fabulous literary works. We're talking about very, very brilliant, insightful, artistic people. But you take a human masterpiece, and you read it once, and you read it twice, and you read it a third time. And you read it a fourth time. And by that time, you have an absolutely thorough grasp on the intent of the author. You understand the message of the book. You understand all of the nuances, all of the angles, all of the hidden kind of symbolism. Ultimately, the best thing that men and women can write, you, you master it in fairly short order. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is... uh, Let me just say one other thing about those masterpieces. The masterpieces become masterpieces because someone has borrowed something from God, even if he's not accredited for it. You take the greatest books in human history, and it's because some human being has taken some thou shout of God, and they have put it in the story form and express the beauty and the wisdom of the life that is found and unfolds in living within that thou shalt. And then you got the more melancholy kind of personality. And so they write a book that takes and illustrates the the power and the majesty of some thou shalt not of God, some tragedy of a life or a nation that decides to defy the truth of God and and how their life ends up crashing and burning as a result. But all the great themes in life, uh, all the great truths in life are possessed by God. They belong to Him first of all. And we borrow them and, and we then share them. But the Bible is very, very different. It isn't something you master in one or two or three or four sittings. I've been reading the Bible and studying the Bible for 32 years. And, and the Bible continues to open up to me, uh, to this very, very day. It's more alive to me than it has ever been. And I, it, uh, and there is that realization, and I know I speak for so many of you. There's the realization, even uh, for me, as a pastor, any of us it's true, but as a pastor, that one day, when I leave this world and I go to heaven, it will be fill, I will be filled with the conviction that at my best, all I ever did was scratch the surface of the depth of the Word of God. That I just had these fleeting glimpses of the beauty of the nuance of His Word, the depth of His Word, the interconnectedness of His Word. And so the uniqueness of the Word of God. And no one can read it ever, even if they've read it a hundred times in 30 years, can ever read it without the book bringing some new living thing into our lives or taking us to a place where we see something that we've already understood and then he takes us into a greater understanding of that same truth. And how often that happens in life. We think, all right, here is a truth, and I have this truth of God's Word mastered. There's nothing more to know about it. My life has tested this truth from one angle or another for 32 years. And then one day you wake up and some bomb goes off in life, some gigantic situation that is so... Uh, life defining that is a result of it. You are not the same person today that you were yesterday. And then you turn to that same verse and the verse that we thought had nothing more to add to my life, nothing more to speak to me. Now it becomes so alive, speaks so powerfully. I realize I never knew anything about the verse. Uh, before this. And that's the way that it will always be until we go into heaven as it relates to the Word of God and the power or the, the, um, the life of the Word of God. It's a living book and it never ceases to speak or to impart spiritual life to the reader. He says, second, that the Word of God is powerful. And it's powerful simply be because of the fact that it is the Word of God. God never says something in His Word except that He then stands behind that promise or behind that encouragement with all of His power, all of His wisdom, His strength, all of His infinite everything. He isn't just a talker. He speaks what He speaks. Everything that's on this page, He stands behind it 100%. And that's why not one of His promises or one bit of His Word will ever fall to the ground. Every bit of it will be fulfilled. Not a single one of our lives will ever violate a single promise of God's Word. The world as a whole cannot even come together in all of its might and all of its collective whatever and come against a single truth of God and ever disprove it. God gives his word and then the fullness of himself, he He stands behind that word and that promise that he has spoken. He keeps his word. The Bible says, God is not a man. We give praise for that today. Not merely a man, for sure. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Solomon, at the dedication of the temple in Israel, he spoke concerning God, and he said, "'Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel.'" according to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. And I'd like to add my witness to that, however feeble it is. I have never known God to fail one of his promises in in my life, in, in his book. Now, sometime... Uh, It's taken a little while for that promise to be fulfilled, but ultimately always fulfilled. I cannot, as God is my witness, I could not stand before you and even tell you in one area, one time, one instance in which God has not been faithful to his word and to back his word up with his Power because he and God is going to have the final say in every individual life and every single aspect related to human history as a whole because he stands behind his word, he never promises something and then fails to do it. And God's word is powerful because he not only speaks his word but he then gives us the power. To obey His Word. That's very important to realize. God never gives us a command in His Word except that He gives us the power to obey that command. Every single time. His power is there behind the Word of God. And so the, the Bible not only is a living book, it not only lives, but it also works. There's power to live the life that's described on these pages. Otherwise, we would look at this Bible, read the Bible, and we'd say, look at the life that's described here. God put all of these wonderful things in here just to taunt us with all the things that He wants for us and promises to us, but we have no power or ability to live this life that He describes here. But it isn't that way. When He gives a commandment, he couples with that commandment the ability to obey it. I think the classic example in the Scriptures is Jesus and his life and ministry. He was in a, a synagogue up in the city of Capernaum in northern Israel, and they had a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he had a withered hand, he deformed of his hand, no use of his hand. And they, the religious leaders of the Jews, they brought him into the room in order that they knew Jesus would spot him, and they felt that Jesus would heal him, and so they wanted to see if Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath day in violation, not of God's Word, but of their interpretation of God's Word. So this is the game they're playing. Jesus comes on the scene. He's not going to play the game. He tells the man to simply stand right where it is that he is. And he brings him out, right out into the open. And he speaks to the man and he said, stretch forth your hand. Now just do like a a pause right there. Like you don't know the rest of the story. And some of you don't. You just stop right there. Jesus is speaking to a man who has a paralyzed, withered hand. And he tells him to stretch forth his hand. That's the command of God that Jesus gives to him. You stop right there And the average person in the audience is sitting there thinking, I have never seen or been a witness to a more cruel situation than the one that I saw in church today in Capernaum. I mean, here you had this religious man. He has a man stand up in front of everybody with a withered hand, and then he calls on him to stretch forth his hand. Doesn't that religious leader, doesn't that Jesus... Realize that if that man could stretch forth his hand, he would have stretched forth his hand years ago. He's asking him to do something that's impossible. Humanly impossible, but not impossible for God. And we know the rest of the story. He reached out his hand in obedience to the Word of God and he discovered at the same moment the ability to obey the commandment. And you can read every promise in the Bible in that same light. He does not put a single promise or encouragement in his word to mock us or to make fun of us or to say, this is what I might do, but probably you're not going to get that. Behind every word in this book is the idea that as we obey it, some withered area of our life will be transformed by doing so. God's has his power, he gives his power to obey the word of God. I remember I was a new Christian, and I was listening to Christian radio, and back in those days there were these two guys that were counseling. I think they came on at two in the afternoon or something. They did Christian counseling on the radio. <laughs> it was like, wow. I mean, that's a pretty public place to do counseling, it's on the radio. And then, so, but they're doing it and I don't know how you can take the time to finally get between what are symptom problems and what's the core problem and that. But I didn't listen to it very long because something happened, uh, early on that was really troubling to me. Lady calls in. She says, I got this problem in my life and all, and I went to see my pastor. Before she could continue her story, one of the guys jumped in. This is a Christian counseling show. One of the guys jumped in and says, no, wait a second, don't tell me. You, your pastor told you, take two verses and see them in the morning. And they both started laughing over that. It infuriated me. And the reason that it infuriated me is because my life, is a testimony to the power of God behind His Word. The explanation for my life is not discipline or faithfulness or stick or any of these things. The explanation for the quality of my life, such as it is, The quality of life that I live is that God has given commands and promises in His Word and then given people like me the power to then obey that and then experience the healing of my withered life in one area after another until a quality of life begins to emerge that's worthy of God and might create a thirst in somebody else to come to know the same God that has changed my life. And the impression that they were giving, which is astonishing for anyone claiming to represent Christ, but the impression that they were giving was that God, that these verses remain on the page, that God doesn't stand behind his word, and that if she would simply take, as her pastor said, those two verses as they applied to her situation, obey those verses that great and dramatic things would happen in her life. And so the minimizing of the power of the Word of God. This is a powerful, powerful book because God stands behind His Word. He makes it powerful in all of the ways that He He makes uh, it, it powerful. And, and And so this is he 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 gives that ability to change lives. I think about the demoniac. Jesus cast the demons out of them. And they and Jesus asked the name of the demon that was in this demoniac, and he said, Our, our name is Legion. Well, the Roman legion is six thousand. So this guy is is demon possessed by how many hundreds of thousands of demons we don't know enough to fill a herd full of a uh, 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 herd of swine, a big herd, and drive them into the Sea of Galilee. So this guy's a walking demonic stronghold. And by the time Jesus takes the word of God and he applies it to this man's life, he ends up seated, clothed, and in his right mind before Jesus, the power of the Word of God. You think about that guy, when's the last time he had clothes on? He's naked out there cutting himself in the area of Gadara. So and to be seated, when was the last time he knew that kind of peace or rest in, in his right mind? The power of the Word of God. I remember one time we were in India many years ago and we were preparing to leave the country and the, those that were hosting us, we were with Gospel for Asia, they took us to a slum in Bombay. And it was built out by the garbage dump of Bombay. And we went out to this slum. And here were these just lean-tos and houses, little cubicles made out of anything and everything, old plywood, plastic, um, uh, viscoine, uh, metal that could be found, anything and everything, some of them able to find some masonry block and all, and one built upon another, and you could look in all directions and you could not see the end of this city. you are talking about tens of thousands, and and I was told hundreds of thousands of people living in this slum. Unimaginable conditions. The sewer lines just open trenches all the way through the place. The water sources, unbelievable. But there are people there, eternal human beings. That's where they are in this world. And Gospel for Asia looked and said, we got to get the gospel to them, began to teach Bible studies in that great slum. People began to get saved. And then began to grow in the Word of God and teach the Bible studies themselves in these various different homes throughout the slums. And they wanted to take us to meet some of these Christians. And you turn a corner and the alleyways of this slum would just go on endlessly for the eye and yet you could look down and nobody... They could have said, Listen, we're not going to tell you where the Christian lives. You guess where they live. And it wouldn't have taken any guessing. You look right down the alleyway and you could see just by the quality of the, the fact that it was swept in front how the place was managed, however humble the materials go inside of the house, everything neat, clean, in its place, decent and in order. And there was the realization this little cubicle right here is under completely different management from everything else that's happening in this great slum. And it was a witness and is a witness to the power of God's Word and the fact that God stands behind His Word and gives us the power to obey it, transform our lives and make our lives completely different from the world that is all around us. And so God's Word is not only living, but it's powerful. When God speaks, something happens. That's the power of the Word of God. And I, you take the positive confession movement and all and all the nonsense that's involved in that but i would also contend against a low view of the word of god the words that are in this book they come from the same god who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence these are the words of the same god who is able to save a sinner With the gospel. And that's a greater miracle than the creating of the heavens and the earth. The same word that can sanctify a saint is the power of the word of God. Never ever view God's word independent of God Himself. He stands behind His word, He will make sure that it's proven true in our lives. Isaiah 55. In a very familiar passage related to this, God spoke and he said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's pretty high, so are my ways higher than your ways. Would you believe that about your situation right now? And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven... And returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And when a child of God sits down with this Bible like we have in our hands and on our lap today, we are a different person than we were just moments before sitting down and opening up this book and reading it because of the power of the Word of God to revive us spiritually. It is a living book and it is a powerful book and God will conform- confirm Everything in his word, even if it requires the performing of signs and wonders. He confirmed his word, the Bible says, with accompanying signs and wonders. He, not a single one of us will ever, ever, our lives will never make God a liar related to any of his promises or any of his truth. Number three, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And so the writer wants us to know that God's Word is sharp. For what purpose? Penetration. In terms of swords, the most penetrating of swords was a two-edged sword. That cut both ways to make an opening right into the deepest part of a human being physically. In terms of warfare, fatally, that that kind of thing, and he likens this in a positive way related to the Word of God. And the point that the writer is making is that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it can penetrate deeply into a human life in a way that nothing else can, and there is no defense for it. When David sinned in his adultery with Bathsheba, and then in the killing of her husband, in order to attempt to cover up the adultery, God sent a prophet by the name of Nathan to confront David. And God spoke through Nathan the prophet to David and said, Thou art the man. And that word would have been like a two-edged sword straight into his mind and straight into his heart. His whole world would begin to spin. And no amount of David here, he has... Unbelievable financial resources. He's the most powerful man in that part of the world. Position all of these things. All of these things that he could do with everybody else and everything else in the world to protect his heart from conviction or you getting close. All of those things. But the Word of God cut through all of it straight to his heart. And he confessed his sin. The penetrating power of the Word of God, into a human heart, unlike anything else in the world. I think about uh, Peter speaking to Ananias when he was engaged in a bit of hypocrisy in the early church, as recorded in Acts chapter 5, and he uh, sold some land, and then he gave the appearance of taking the full proceeds of the land and giving it toward the work of the church in that early church history and all. And Peter confronted him related to his sin and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the, uh, the price of the land for yourself? When you sold the land and you had the money while it remained, wasn't it your own? You didn't have to give anything to God. You didn't have to give. You, you, you could give or not give or anything. The problem here is not how much you gave or didn't give. Ananias, it's the fact that you're trying to lie to God and introduce hypocrisy into the body of Christ. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And those words penetrated his heart to be sure. And then he uh, fell down dead and he breathed his last and, of course, it created great fear and reverence for God among God's uh, people. God broke through all of his hypocrisy, all of his acting, all of his self-justifications, all of his self-deceptions, and penetrated the deepest part of his life. I think about how many people are in this particular condition, and and maybe you're exactly in that condition here this morning. Think about how many people have gone to a church service unsaved. And they they come into a place like this and they have every intention of leaving as unsaved as they came in. I am here because she brought me. I'm here because he brought me. I'm here because... My friend is not going to stop inviting me till I come. I said I would come one time. Or I'm here because I'm curious about Christian churches and all, but I have no interest in becoming a Christian, but it's a curiosity to me, and I come in. But no intention of being saved at all. And then something gets said in the service from God's Word it penetrates every defense that person has against God and against the gospel and against becoming a Christian, and they become a Christian. And then they say something like this, I felt like I was the only person in the room and God was speaking directly to me. That's the penetrating power of the Word of God. Think about all, think about the people, think about your story as a Christian. How many layers of what did God have to get through related to your heart and your mind to get you saved? How much pain, how much disappointment, how much bitterness, how much anger, how much disappointment with even Christians in your life to where you fold your arms and say... If the whole world gets saved around me, I will not only, not, I will not only be the last person who will ever become a Christian, I will never become a Christian. I hope you believe that about yourself today because you are the next person on God's menu. The apostle Paul was like that. There's never what and all and this and the the religious heritage. There's no way what I would have to give up. Forget it. It's just not going to happen. And God takes and he penetrates through all of it. And he says concerning the gospel to our heart, this is the truth. Walk in it. This is the way. And you know when he's spoken to your heart. And then you come in. And the rest of your life you say, listen, I I went and I had every intention of leaving that church service and going off and spending the rest of the day doing some ungodly thing as I'd done all of my life. But something happened to the penetrating power of the Word of God that I'd never known before and I knew it was God speaking to me. And the fact of the matter is, is that every single one of us who is saved in this room owes something of our salvation to the penetrating power of the Word of God. That gospel got through an awful lot of history, an awful lot of prejudice, an awful lot of programming or um, brainwashing or whatever it might be for us to acknowledge it for the truth that it is. And, and the same kind of thing can happen in the life of a Christian, the, just the piercing, uh, power of, of the Word of God, its penetration. Here you get somebody, Christian, in a room just like this. I say, I'm getting a name. Just kidding. So you sit in a room like this, and you get a Christian who's just settled into their own kind of Christian life, however they want it to be. So, I'm not going to be all on fire about this and everything. And, you know, there's a couple things that I don't want to give up as a Christian. And, and so I fashion this kind of a hybrid Christianity where I live now in disobedience in two or three areas of my life, or I live a carnal life. And I think I'm getting away with it. And then some, then you sit down in a room like this, or maybe a private conversation with another Christian and then somebody speaks the word of God and God gives that word such penetration into your heart about the wrongness of the way what you're doing there and the reflection on Christ or whatever it might be. And here you've got every defense against anything any man could ever say to you, but you're defenseless against the voice of God. Sometimes you can sit and hear something being taught and hear the preacher begins to teach on a particular issue or some kind of of a thing, and you sit there and you realize, okay, this God is talking to me right now. And sometimes it can be so personal, you start to get red. I mean, if somebody came in and did your vitals, you'd be in some kind of a dangerous place because you know, okay, this is a God thing that's happening right now. Sometimes you'll look to your left, You look to your right to make sure that everybody isn't staring at you because that's how intense what's happening in your life in the room is. And it's just the penetrating power of the Word of God. There is no human heart and no human mind that the Word of God cannot penetrate. The Word of God, forth. Also, let me just say that about one more thing about the penetrating power. And then I'll order pizzas in if I go too long on things. We'll just get them. But it isn't just rebuke. So here you, here you have a man or a woman. This is, it's all of our experience one degree or another. Maybe not exactly, but we hit it all. We hit it in life. And one day you wake up and life as you knew it is kind of over. She left. Never saw it coming. He left. never saw it coming twenty three years I never saw it. there was never a hint I ne- and then there he is he's gone. Well, the bottom falls out on the business. one phone call and it's over, or you get that f- phone call or the results of some test from the doctor or whatever. And now the head is spinning, the heart is so full of so many emotions and so many things going on that all you want to do is have someone just take you, put you in a chair, prop you up in front of a wall that has nothing on it, hopefully painted white, so there's no more stimulation in your life. And a thousand people can come to you and offer human encouragement to you in that situation, and there'll be no penetration. And then God brings a verse to your remembrance. And you know that came from the throne of God. You know that's from His Word. And where you thought there could be no hope infused into the situation, it's instantly infused. The penetration and the penetrating power of the Word of God, even related to encouragement and instruction, regaining of perspective, that we need the power of the word of God that way, and then fourth, the power the word of God pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. You think about He uses the human body talking about um, marrow bones. When does now we're talking about ancient times? We know a little bit more about that today than than then, but we know the marrow's in the bone. But when does bone cease to become, be bone and become marrow? And when does marrow cease to be marrow and become bone? Or he talks about a joint. I, I, I was in an accident uh, a couple of years ago, and part of what happened is I ended up with a frozen shoulder. And so I started going to some physical therapy on things, and it's not until you injure something that you begin to appreciate. You can start to appreciate certain things. I just always took all of this movement for granted and everything until you can't do it. And, and talking with a physical therapist in the room that attends the fellowship here, and, and he began to talk about the shoulder, and he says, It's just a marvel. It's a marvel of creation. It, you think about the shoulder. It allows you to move your arm forward, to move it backwards, to move it outwards, to move it upwards, to spin it. Whee! <laughs> to go spin it backwards. And, and, and just in some elementary way of him explaining to me how involved just the joint of a shoulder is in order to give us the unbelievable motion and function of that joint. And as a result of the fact that these joints are so amazingly intricate, that one of the most intricate kind of surgeries that you can perform has to do with the dealing with a joint, where you're dealing with some kind of a surgery of the the joint. Very, very intricate. And so the writer here, when he talks about piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, he's talking about that on a physical level, but he says what's true of a joint or the bones and the marrow of a human body also true of the soul and of the spirit. Where does the spirit end and the soul begin? Where does the soul end and the spirit begin? And what he's talking about here, the soul refers to our intellect, our thinking. It refers to our emotions, our feeling. And the spirit he's talking about here is talking about what the Holy Spirit, the new man The inner man that the Holy Spirit brings into our life as a result of being born again. And there's a difference between the new man that the Holy Spirit has brought into my life, this new life, and the old man. The old way of thinking, the old emotions. And sometimes they can appear to be very, very close to one another, but how to differentiate between the two. And there are times where it's vital as a Christian to differentiate between the two, and only the Word of God can uh, do that in our lives. You say, what in the world is this man talking about? I don't know, I'm bluffing at this point to the end of the service. What's really spiritual and what's just really emotional or intellectually stimulating? And I'll give you an example of this. Concerning the emotions, you go to a church service and there is the worship and song part of the service. So the worship team begins to play the music and, and all, and a person begins to worship in song. But who am I worshiping? What's what's my focus in that environment? What's the focus of the song that I'm singing? There are some songs that are written to be Christian songs and all, and they are so full of I, me, and my that the entire focus of the song is to put my focus on me and never to put it upon God. But, you know, there's something about me that likes my focus being put upon me. (laughs) Yeah, somebody finally wrote a song. (laughs) And you can end up with worship music that is as man-centered and self-absorbed as anything that the world is cranking out. And you can come into that kind of an environment and sing those songs one right after another and not realize, I just had a very emotional experience, but there was nothing spiritual about it. And then you pick up your Bible one day, and then you read as Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, but the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father. That's who worship is about. And they'll do so in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him will worship in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in reality. It won't be a mix of self-worship and the worship of Him. It'll be about Him, and because it's about Him, it will do great things in our lives as a byproduct, but that's not the, the main aim of it. And the Word of God then exposes the fact that, wow, I thought all this time I was in a deeply spiritual experience when it was just a soulish, emotional experience. And only the Word of God can get in that tight between those things and help us to see that there's a difference between the two. And I'm alarmed a little bit. Not too much, but a little bit. And it's because of a drift away from the Word of God that less and less people are able, Christians are able to discern between what is a soulish experience where someone has just figured out how to manipulate our emotions and to engage us that way versus something that is truly spiritual. And the longer that kind of thing goes on, the more people get confused about what is merely a soulish experience and what is a truly spiritual experience until the truly spiritual experience becomes so rare it gets lost and then this becomes the new definition. And that's a terrible, terrible thing to have happen. And that kind of thing is going on. But it doesn't just have to do with the emotions. It also has to do with the intellect. Here's that same person in that same church service, and that the the Word of God has begun to be taught in that service, but the teaching of the Bible isn't God-centered. It's man-centered. The whole idea behind the Bible study is not to glorify God. Not to give God, give us a greater revelation of the greatness of God and to produce worship within us and awe of Him and then a desire to obey Him out of the unbelievable blessing that this, I get to know this God and this God loves me. But now the Bible teaching drops down from something so lofty and perfect as that is to now have the teaching be man focused. It's all about me. It's all about my potential, who I am, the great person that I am, seven principles from the Word of God on how to become financially prosperous, or, or, the, or these kind of, you know, things that get put out in, in front of us, and the whole thing becomes man-centered uh, in, instead of it being God-centered. And so that, that whole thing affects the, the intellect Is well. Sermons on how to learn to love myself and how to learn to forgive myself and myself and myself and myself and myself and myself. And And then I wake up one morning and I realize why I wonder why I don't want to go to church. It's the same old thing in church, the same self-absorption, the same self-dominance as everywhere else. And now it's become that in this environment, but nobody can recognize that there's a difference between the soul and the spirit, until one day then we sit down, we read our Bible, and we discover that Jesus said, if anyone wants, desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Oh, this isn't about me. This is about God, and this is about others, and that... God's Word begins to make us realize that's what spiritual looks like. The other is not spiritual. Or Jesus saying, and whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Or what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, not the big I, me and my, yet not I... But Christ lives in me and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Those are two entirely different church services, two entirely different focuses. But it gets lost because the soul and the Spirit can appear so close and only the Word of God can make us realize you are engaged at this point in a soulish experience and not a spiritual experience and you're paying a terrible price for it. And the worst thing of all is a person looks, tries all of this I, me, my and the name, so-called name of Christianity, it implodes and fails in their life as much as it will out in the world. They think they've tried Christianity and God and that God failed me and they don't realize they never came within a 100 miles of what Christianity really is and what the call is. And so the importance of the Word of God to take and bring this kind of division in there to keep us from self-deception. And then finally, the Word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, it judges and it tests our inner thoughts and our inner motivations. It's a funny thing. Sometimes you become you're a new Christian. We become a new Christian, and God begins to clean us up really quick, like in two weeks. Man, I'm not swearing anymore. I'm working hard at the job. My relationships around have gotten pretty good. And, boy, I'm only this age. Life expectancy for a, 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 an American male is 77 years old. Looks like I've got about 50 years left. What in the Lord, world is the Lord going to work on? He's just about got me sanctified and ready for heaven in two weeks. And we think that the whole, that all God's going to work on has to do with the outward. And we think we're ready to be put on Christian, cover of Christianity Today magazine. Here he is. And then God's Word moves beyond just what's coming out of our mouth and how we present ourselves. And it begins to deal with our motives behind what comes out of our mouth and what comes out of our lives. And then it begins to deal with our thoughts. And all of a sudden we realize, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to take all the way (laughs) until I go to heaven. This is a big job that God is taking on. And it's a great revelation when that occurs. And there is that place where we think we've got it made, you know, and, and uh, ready to enter into heaven and get the big old crown and be seated, you know, right next to the apostles and all. And then we read God's Word and we discover where Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. And then Jesus said to him, no, I don't say to you up to seven times, but seven times 70. How many seconds? The seven times that you got the zero, that's a four, 490 times. And then you realize, I don't think I'm even at seven, let alone 14 or 360. And that God has a lot more to do related to my life, Where you turn to the most convicting passage maybe in all of the Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. And then you go, oh, I think God is going to be at this a little while as it relates to my life. And the world sows so many things, so many motivations, so many thoughts, so many stuff gets sown into our lives. And then we pick up our Bible, we start to read it, it exposes the lies of all of that and then that, that wants to become a part of our motivations and our thinking and without the Word of God we'd be completely self-deceived. He closes with verse 13 and it's the writer's way of saying related to this, listen to God, He's the only one who knows what He's talking about. God looks at me, This morning, he looks at you, you're seated. My life is open and naked before him with whom I have to do. He knows everything about me. Everything about me. He knows everything about you. That's why hiding or hypocrisy, all of it's just a complete waste of time. This is self deception, it never fools him. And the writer is saying, in light of the fact that God knows each of us this well then isn't it important for us to obey his word for our own good? Only God could know us as well as the writer of this book knows us. And nowhere is that more important than in the area of salvation, as he's warning them not to apostatize away from Christ. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, There are going to be pastors and others up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to pray with you to invite Jesus into your life and allow this book, the Bible, to become all of this and more in your life. And the warning here is not to bet against God's assessment of your need for salvation and of His provision for that salvation in His Son, but to receive that into your life this morning. He knows us. He knows you. He knows you need to be saved. And he's provided the Savior for that to happen. And today's the day for that to happen. So take advantage of the opportunity. So we close by just realizing what a privilege it is and what a dynamic. We wake up in the morning, you know, we're just, "Ah, don't talk. Nobody talk to me until I have my second cup of coffee. Don't talk to Dad until he has a cup of coffee. You know that. And then you go and you're slugging the thing down and the whole deal. And sometimes we're reading, and we don't know the half of what is going on by the Spirit of God through this book. Beautiful passage that speaks to us of the privilege of being able to read and to know this book. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Mm-hmm. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Thank You for its power. Thank You for its penetration. Thank You that it is alive. Thank You for all of the... how many self-deceptions we would fall prey to every day apart from Your Word. And thank You for the beauty and the quality of life that is ours. This side of heaven, to say nothing of heaven because of the power and the truth of your word, Lord. We give you thanks for your word and the fact that you stand behind it and use it so dramatically in our lives. We give you thanks this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.